Hello and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. My name is Melissa Pitati. This podcast is part of the CHS Alliance initiative to cultivate care and compassion in aid organizations. I wanted our last episode of 2021 to be with Dr. Liza Jockins, an occupational health psychologist, lecturer, and research associate at Webster University. It's her research that convinced me in 2019 to start digging deeper into the organizational stressors that affect humanitarians in surprisingly significant ways. Her findings tell an important story that I thought you should hear. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Liza Jockins. Welcome. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here and a great privilege to be sharing information with you all. Oh, wonderful. Liza, I think the first time I saw you in person, you were giving a presentation here in Geneva at the Palais um, about some of your research findings. And that's when I really began to see the connections between the work we're doing in CHS Alliance and the work you're doing. Uh, But for those people who are listening who might not be familiar with you and your work, do you want to say a little bit just to give them a flavor of where you're coming from? Uh, Yes, sure, Melissa. So I I work at Webster University. So some of my time I do teaching and I teach research and a couple of other things. Um, But uh, my passion also is doing research on humanitarian aid workers. And I've been doing research for quite a few years now, maybe about five or six, Mm -hmm. and also done surveys for around six organizations now, Mm -hmm. uh, done some qualitative research as well, interviewing humanitarians, Mm -hmm. and it's been super, super interesting, Uh, and obviously some publications that have come out from that. Oh, wow, I didn't realize you'd partnered with six organizations now, that's impressive. Uh, what drew you to humanitarians in particular? Was it your proximity here in Geneva where there's so many organizations or there's another reason? Um, it was actually, I think, Webster University. Um, uh, Dr. Roz Thomas was the, the head of psychology at the time, and she had done her PhD on humanitarian workers. And she was so invested and I think got me interested in the topic to a large extent. But sure, I think the location made a big difference too. Okay, fantastic. So you mentioned uh, working with six organizations, um, and you've been looking at, uh, for example, mental health aid workers. I remember um, looking at uh, some of your findings regarding some of the organizational aspects of what they do. Um, From all of your work now with all these different organizations, what has surprised you? Yes, there have been one or two surprises. Um, So I think the one thing that surprised me is that not all of the organizations have published their results publicly. Okay, so they've done internal publishing of the results. So the employees get to see the results, but the results are not always available publicly. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the exact reasons for this, but I think one of the reasons may be the stigma attached to reporting mental health outcomes. So I suppose you might want to call it bad press. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do understand the reasons. Um, but there's so many advantages to publishing openly. So one of them is, for example, you can do some benchmarking. Mm-hmm. And this is not about one organization doing better or worse than another. You know, it's about looking at challenges and strengths of each organization. Mm-hmm. And if one organization is doing something really well, mm-hmm. say, for example, on communication, we can all learn from that. 
And if everybody's struggling with high burnout rates, we can mm -hmm. learn from that too. Uh, so we can look at looking at uh, common stresses for humanitarians and work together on how to address them. Mm. So I think it would be wonderful to see interventions uh, developed that could be applied in several contexts and several organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think, you know, the sharing publicly helps collaboration and sharing of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there was an event a few years ago, it was a round table event where a few organizations came together and they shared their health outcomes, they shared their strategies. Um, and there was just so much learning that happened that day. There was so much openness and willingness to talk, uh, what was being done, what could be done, what were the challenges. And, and that was really super. So yeah, that was one of the surprises anyway. It was just around that sort of, I assumed being a researcher, it would be, mm -hmm. it would be public, but that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the second thing was really about what was out there when I started. So there mm -hmm. wasn't really that much published on mental health. Mm. Um, but six years later, there, there actually is now a lot more. Mm. Uh, but the literature in the beginning was quite fragmented. Mm -hmm. um, so it wouldn't be, uh, it would just be on one country or just looking at PTSD or only looking at international workers. So, mm. yeah, so there, there wasn't a huge amount available when I first started out. And uh, one of the things I did because of that mm -hmm. was actually look at other human service occupations. Mm -hmm. So I was delving into the literature on the police and nurses mm -hmm. and teachers and doctors mm -hmm. and so on. And this really helped and guided my research quite a bit. And they seem to have, that all these types of jobs have a high emotional load and they're often exposed to trauma, um, witnessing trauma. Mm -hmm. And although their occupations are different, many mm. of them have very similar stresses. Mm. So they're quite similar in nature. Mm -hmm. And again, I think this is useful because maybe interventions or learnings can be applied across contexts. Wow, that's, there's so much to unpack there in those two observations. <laughs> um, the, the fact that there are not so many that are willing to go public with the, the results um, for a variety of understandable reasons. Um, and also that there are some, there's so much to learn from others who are, um, I think you called it the human service. What did you call yes. it? H human service? No. Human services, service yes. occupations. Yeah. yeah, I've yeah. sometimes called it helping occupations or um, those who are very idealistic, who want to go and serve others. Um, when we, when we, when we um, had another podcast guest named Roger Perry from Agenda Consulting, He's done a lot of staff engagement surveys and found a lot of scope for a sector-wide benchmarked data collection where you could uh, be able to even group organizations by size or regions or these things and see how there, there could be some areas for improvement across sectors. So it seems like there, there, it's possible to do something like you're saying, where you have benchmarking and you could bring organizations together around the learning. Um, you mentioned an example of where people came together and shared results and is almost, <laughs> in a sense, by sharing, you almost, it's it's got benefits in itself in terms of dealing with the stress. How do we deal with these outcomes? Well, it'll help each other. Um, could you say more about what that space that you saw, was there some follow-up to it or what could something look like for in terms of peer sharing? I, there's, there certainly was, I don't know if it was formal follow-ups, 
but it was really a great resource for people to be connected mm -hmm. who were passionate about the same topics. Mm -hmm. And I think what really did happen was uh, there was a bit of, of sharing on, on strategies uh, and interventions. And I think that was super useful, mm. uh, if I remember correctly. But yeah, it was, it was just an amazing day. Just, uh, we just learned so much from each other. Mm, fantastic. So we'd love to see more of that. Um, yes. <laughs> the two, I'll tell you now the two things that surprised me when I um, got to read your work and listen to some of your presentations. Um, the first one was you noticed uh, that humanitarians are more likely than members of the general public to experience burnout, to experience a mental illness like depression, anxiety, PTSD, to, to take up hazardous coping mechanisms like um, alcoholism. That was number one. Number two was that um, even though you could point to a lot of operational stressors, for example, someone's operating in a, in a conflict setting or in a natural disaster setting, um, what seemed to contribute even more to people's negative outcomes were organizational stressors. And here you could point to things like uh, the, way that things, the way that things are done. Maybe there could be some dysfunction. Um, those are the two things that surprised me. Could you, could you talk more about these two things? Yes, uh, I can talk a lot about these things. <laughs> um, it's certainly true. So in my research, I've consistently found humanitarians to be a lot more at risk than the general pub public. Uh, the risk can be double. Sometimes it's triple the risk for negative health outcomes. So I can give you some examples. Uh, so for anxiety, um, the humanitarians are around 30% at risk. Uh, compared to the European population, it would be around 8%. And to compare to another human services uh, profession like the police, that would be sitting at around 10%. So, uh, and I think for depression, it's fairly similar percentages actually. And then for PTSD, uh, humanitarians around 25% at risk, European population around 6%, and the police around 14%. So sometimes uh, humanitarians are, are even more at risk than, than the police um, in some cases, not all cases, but sometimes they are. And the obvious clue as to why that is the case is because they work in these challenging contexts. And that's why people automatically start thinking about these operational or occupational risks, you know, this witnessing to distressing events, exposure to trauma, suffering, okay. Um, but there is quite a bit of variability in those percentages that I've just given you. Um, there's a lot of variability across regions. So, you know, not, in Middle East, North Africa, for example, they would be much sort of higher for PTSD. Uh, Switzerland might be a little bit more at risk for burnout and, you know, heavy drinking. So there is, you know, we have to take that into consideration. Uh, women and men, um, you know, there are, there are lots of differences, international and national workers. I should probably stop there. <laughs> um, so when we, but, you know, the, this, these challenging contexts is only half the story. Okay, uh, humanitarians, like any employee, are also exposed to organizational stresses. And as you were saying, it's, it's about the design and management of work. So it would be things like um, having a high workload, uh, how much support you're getting at work from your colleagues, from your managers, recognition at work, job security, uh, how much influence or job control uh, 
uh, you might have. Change is a big one at the moment, being exposed to a lot of change. So these are, these are all organizational stresses. And these are the factors that I've really been sort of investigating quite deeply. I've been looking at some stress models that incorporate some of these uh, organizational factors. And what we found has been, I think, quite extraordinary um, because they're just such good predictors. Um, so we found that those who were classified as having a high number of these organizational stresses were between three and 10 times more likely to be at risk uh, for a negative health outcome. And, you know, I think, stop me if I'm going on too long here, Melissa, but I think what's particularly interesting is that um, these organizational stresses are also important for trauma-related trauma health outcomes like PTSD. And, you know, we don't typically think of organizational stresses when we're thinking about PTSD. You know, our immediate assumption is it's all about trauma. So, you know, what, what am I talking about here? What, what, what could this mean? Um, and, I, you know, just to give you an example here is that the level of workplace stress that an individual is experiencing before or after a traumatic event actually affects the extent to which they will develop a poor mental health outcome. So if you've got um, somebody experiencing many of these organizational stresses, which I've been talking about, you know, maybe they're hiding their emotions, they've got work overload and so on, at the time of the traumatic event. So you can imagine how that would affect their level of resilience and it may affect how they heal from a trauma. So it seems like the work context can make quite a big difference on the pathway from trauma to recovery or from trauma to PTSD. So I think, I think that's an interesting thing to, to think about because the dialogue about PTSD has mostly been about trauma. And of course it is about trauma. Of course it is. We can't take that away from it. But I think there are more things that we need to start thinking about. Um, I mean, yeah, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, I did want to jump in because it ties to something you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. When you started doing this research, you saw when it comes to humanitarians, there was fragmented research and it was more focused on international workers. It was more focused on PTSD. Flash forward to now, I come into the conversation with an interest in burnout, which um, according to WHO and the ICD-11 is looking at uh, the mismanagement of workplace stress so I was thinking chronic stress. Um, I wasn't thinking about trauma so much in that exploration of burnout. I was thinking of the chronic stressors that are kind of on a day-to-day -day grind. But when you bring out a trauma-informed approach, you start to see all the nuances. And so you've already mentioned the, the interlinks. If you did experience PTSD, but you have stress, chronic stress before and after that can affect your resilience. Um, looking deeper at this issue of trauma can explain so much. I think even you mentioned kind of these indicators that come out that can be a model for things. We also see things that are experienced in people's childhood can affect their later behavior. Do you wanna say more about how you see this interlinkage between um, some of the chronic stressors we might be dealing with as a result of how our work is organized and this idea of how trauma comes into it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what, we, what, what the research is really kind of showing us is that when you have all of these, this chronic stress going on, um, you can be 
you know, five, up to five times more at risk for, for developing PTSD. So I think that says, that's, let's say a huge amount. Um, and we really do need to consider these, these chronic stresses. Uh, yeah, and I think it's just a new perspective on looking at it. And I think you're absolutely right, Melissa, in pointing out that it's, it's not just about the workplace. It's obviously uh, individual characteristics are going to be playing a role as well. You know, uh, there's, you know, perfectionism, there's loads of, of qualities and personal experiences, your history, that can be playing a, a large part in this as well. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting, mostly because workplace stress, the stresses are modifiable. So it's the one thing that can actually change in the workplace. And I think that's what's exciting about it. We can't always control you know, trauma and, and who's exposed to that. We can't, we can't change our past or, you know, sometimes who we are, our personality types, you know, um, but this is something that we can change. And I think that's, that's what's exciting. Great way to keep us on track here. <laughs> <laughs> in my own story, my doctor said, you can remove yourself from uh, if it's a workplace stress, you can remove yourself if you need to, to, to have more space from that. You can't necessarily remove yourself from your context where you're sitting, <laughs> but there's some things that can be done and then you can modify the working arrangement and hopefully collectively we can all improve how we work. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you kind of alluded to it earlier. Uh, you started doing the research before COVID um, and now during COVID a new stressors have come also Black Lives Matter has really reminded us of some of the structural injustices you meant mentioned different outcomes based on region different outcomes based on gender um, have you noticed anything in particular surfacing maybe related to some of the newer conversations that are happening around remote working or dealing with the epidemic or uh, some of these social justice issues? Uh, yes, I think to answer your question, um, I've only done one survey with sort of COVID related questions. So I don't feel that well equipped to answer, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of questions on, on the topic specifically around COVID. Um, but I think we all recognize, you know, that COVID-19 is far more than a health crisis. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's disproportionately impacted certain groups, um, vulnerable communities, mm -hmm. uh, healthcare workers, um, mm -hmm. you know, those from ethnic and minority groups, refugees, uh, people who have got mental illness already. Um, and I think the whole thing about uh, social justice is that mm -hmm. it these impacts um, have Long, they reflect long-standing inequalities. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, social justice is a determinant of health and well-being. Mm -hmm. There is disproportionate suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I think what I was kind of wondering to myself, and maybe our listeners or, or you may know this, is mm -hmm. have humanitarians been classified as essential workers? Are they seen as a vulnerable, vulnerable group in the COVID context? Because if you think about it, um, you know, they front line too. They mm -hmm. face greater risk because of that. Um, they're helping vulnerable populations. Um, and I believe, I think I read somewhere as well that there's been some backlash against aid workers stemming mm -hmm. from fear and stigma related to, to COVID-19. Um, in the, in the, the survey that I did recently, we looked at um, 
some COVID questions, there were only two, I think, but there was over a quarter of people thought that COVID had influenced how they had answered their well-being related questions. Mm. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I was just wondering mm -hmm. if, you know, the impact of COVID had been disproportional for humanitarian workers. And I don't know the answer to that question. I can say, I can guess it probably yes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, maybe we need to, to look more closely at the impact of COVID on humanitarian workers. I agree. I, I, as you were talking, uh, one thing came up for me. Uh, there's often a, a sense of guilt. I've talked to some humanitarians who work in a headquarters role, for example, who are sitting in an office setting so they could work from home during COVID lockdown. Um, and this guilt was there before, you know, my colleagues are um, more on the front line in a more um, risky situation. And I'm in an office setting in a capital or whatnot. And something you found in your own research was even uh, at a headquarters, you can see negative outcomes for people in, in terms of mental health, even if they're in a very quote unquote safe environment um, in an office setting where they could end up working from home during COVID. Does that make sense mm -hmm. to you? Yes, it, it does. And it's absolutely true. I mean, uh, we did find, uh, uh, you know, in the headquarters, there, there were there were a lot of, a lot of mental health issues that, that were coming up. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, humanitarians identify very strongly uh, with with humanitarian goals and you know when you're stepping back from the field it's quite sometimes harder to create meaning from your work if you yeah. if you're not if you're not in the field if you're not and maybe that's difficult if you're mm -hmm. sitting in headquarters if that's if that's your thing that you really mm -hmm. want to help um, and you've got really that strong altruism being detached from that can be quite difficult but yes I think headquarters has a lot of organizational stresses too you know so I think you know, in one in one case you found more alcoholism, right? Than in the uh, yes, that's right. Yes, there was more heavy drinking and more burnout actually in headquarters oh. than than other regions. So it was the the highest uh, yeah highest risk for burnout. Yeah, I've told people not to feel ashamed if they find themselves in a burnout or negative coping mechanisms. Um, not to feel ashamed because oh, I'm, I have it so much easier than my colleagues in X location is that everyone can be struggling no matter where they are. Um, we're part of something, a bigger system that has a lot of challenges in how we operate. Sure. And the, the challenges are different. You know, um, it doesn't make them less. They're different. Mm -hmm. yeah. And a recent event that I attended that you spoke out spoke at. Um, you mentioned that you were really looking forward to opportunities to put your findings and your learnings to use so that organizations can have better mental health outcomes for their staff. Um, I'm curious what 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 could this look like from your perspective? Yes, so so I didn't work in the humanitarian organization, so I am kind of limited to recommendations, but I can tell you some of my observations of what I've seen has been going on. Okay. Um, so a lot of the time I've noticed that they're using the research uh, as a tool mm -hmm. to leverage 
resources for mental health. Mm -hmm. So to give you some examples, I've seen more counsellors, more psychologists being employed. Mm -hmm. I've seen mental health insurance being improved. Um, Mm -hmm. So people have more affordable access to external services. Mm -hmm. I've seen um, some funding for Mm -hmm. specific interventions, uh, like that heavy drinking in particular contexts. Okay. Um, But what you'll notice about all of these interventions is that they fall into one category. Um, They are responding or reacting to existing mental health problems. Mm. And so, you know, a lot of the recommendations that I'm trying to do now is to actually do more of an integrated approach Mm -hmm. where you start looking at protecting mental health, promoting mental health. And the protecting of the mental health would be looking at how to reduce those work-related risk factors. So looking at those organizational stresses that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. How do we reduce those? And looking at how do we promote mental health? How do we reduce stigma? Um, developing positive aspects of work. What are the resources? What are worker mm-hmm. strengths? You know, looking at some of the positive capabilities you know, capacities as well. And of course, we have to and must respond to mental health problems as they occur and make services as accessible as possible. That's not, that's just as important. But I just, yeah, I kind of hoping for a more integrated approach. Um, One of the things that I think we need to look at quite carefully is addressing stigma. Mm -hmm. um, Because what I've noticed is that it seems to be seriously impacting access to mental health services. So I noticed on the, you know, looking at the data from the surveys, Mm -hmm. just as an example, you know, you've got a quarter of a staff who don't really want to um, share with staff health because they're scared of professional consequences, you know, sharing personal information, um, worried about discrimination and that type of thing. So not everyone's comfortable asking for help. And so there's quite a bit that can be done around that, maybe, you know, refreshing communication strategies around health services, um, Mm. maybe implementing something like mental health first aid. Mm. Because I think knowledge and awareness of mental health in itself does reduce stigma. So, Mm. yeah, I think that that would be, you know, one option for an intervention. I I was going to bring up mental health first aid because I've taken your course, (laughs) mental health first aid, and uh, I've seen with our content contextualized conversations with the initiative, there's many organizations that are investing in mental health first aid courses to raise awareness about what are some of the things, some of the signs and symptoms, and then a real focus on encouraging people to take up offers of um, professional support if they seem to need it. Some of, some of the organizations that we talked with were really concerned uh, that if you're trained as a mental health first aider that you might uh, go too far and I'd start trying to diagnose people and here's what I can do to help you. And I, I said, at least in the training I did, it was more about um, having more awareness and um, encouraging people to get help. Yes, that's exactly right. It is about that. It it really is more uh, of a, of an awareness, and uh, you know, I think some people just feel just uh, a bit scared to approach somebody. You know, because if you don't know something about mental health, you may be just too too scared to talk to somebody. And it just gives people that information of like, how do you talk to somebody? You know, how do you create a safe space? And it's mostly about how do you refer? How do you get that help? you know, at the right time and when to refer, what are you looking out for? What are the signs and symptoms? 
So mm-hmm. I think I think it's quite helpful, um, and it's particularly helpful with stigma yeah. um, in the workplace. I learned a lot, and I think it also helps people who have gone through something themselves to see that they're not alone. That this is very common. A lot of these. Um, issues and, and and I also wanted to shout out to one of your presentations where you did a an exercise in what was called I think you called it job crafting because yes. um, you mentioned uh, this idea of having uh, more meaning in the work uh, where you can actually there's very low cost techniques that can be done today where you sit down with the, an employee and look at their job description and find ways to craft it in a way that um, connects more to their interest or the purpose or meaning, it can really help them in the long run have more satisfaction out of the work and be more effective. Yes, absolutely. I think job crafting is another lovely, lovely intervention. And and, and anybody can do that too. Um, you know, it, there, there's information on, on that out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think doing it in workshops and a work setting is also particularly useful. Uh, employees can customize their jobs in a way it's one way of looking at it um, changing up their tasks changing up their relationships at work and mm-hmm. it's all you know thinking very carefully about what your values and what your passions are and if you can start aligning your job more towards your your passions and your values mm-hmm. um, you can create more meaning in your work you know and it, it is about having some influence and some control over your work mm-hmm. and that's that's shown to be really helpful for well-being mm-hmm. So I know uh, we're probably wrapping up at this in a few moments, um, and I would like you to share with the listeners how to learn more about your work. But before that, um, given all of this huge amount of research you've done and uh, different people you've talked to, um, do you have any parting words of advice for us? Um, well, individually, I think it's just really important that everybody makes their mental health a priority. Um, and the other thing I would say is that if everybody could just have a voice in the mental health at work, uh, participate, you know, um, because it's everybody's responsibility to create these positive workplaces, you know, to be to be kind and to, to have that listening voice. I think that's that's really it's really simple advice, but super super important. Prioritize your own health, but also have that voice in promoting mental health at work. Beautiful, that's a great way to to leave us. So, for those listeners, I'm sure who will want to learn more about your work, to read some of your research, uh, what would you suggest? How could they get in touch? And we can also leave it in the show notes. Um, I think the easiest access point would probably be on ResearchGate. Most of my publications are open access. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also on the Webster University research page, uh, they list all their or list all the publications with links. So I think those are the two most common ways of, of finding the research. But I'm, you know, happy to receive an email and help people out. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do, Liza. You really got me hooked on these issues uh, and seeing the links between well-being, organizational culture, people management, um, looking at compassion in the workplace. Um, So it's so helpful to know there are people like you who are paying really close attention to what's going on with people and the idea of having people-centered work for people-centered 
aid. Um, thank you so much, Liza. We wish you the best for your future endeavors and hope to have you back sometime. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Dr. Liza Jockins. Check out the show notes to see more information about her research and some links on mental health first aid and job crafting. I want to give a big thanks to our editor, Ziada Abayid, and the initiative supporters, including the CHS Alliance members, the government of Luxembourg, the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and the Netherlands. We'll be back soon with another episode exploring care and compassion in aid and development. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.